0: The following message was given at Emmanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Would you please turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark today, chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, and while you're turning over there, I I thought it might be a little bit helpful to explain why we change the order of things and why we're having the baptisms next week and the Lord's Supper next week rather than the first Sunday of December, the first Sunday of the month as we normally do. And the reason for that is because that first Sunday, that first weekend is the weekend of the church camping trip. So a huge segment of our congregation is not going to be here that day and we we didn't want all of them to miss the baptisms and the testimonies that will be given. And so that was the reason for for the change. And of course none of these things are written in stone, right? Nothing says we can't change things sometimes if we if, if it works out best for us. So that was the reason. All right, I'm gonna be reading from Mark chapter one and I'll pick up at verse 29. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up And immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you have been so good to us, and you have blessed us in so many ways that we could never count. But we do acknowledge that the greatest blessing of all that we have is that you have given to us your word, wherein and through which we have heard the good news of a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you also that you've given us a church like this where we can gather with people and we can focus our attention upon your greatness and your glory. We can worship you in song and in prayer and now in the hearing of your word. We also acknowledge this morning our dependence upon your Holy Spirit. Lord, we would not approach your word with vain self confidence, but we come humbly. We come acknowledging our need to be taught, to be directed, to be guided by your spirit. And we pray that your word would come with power to our hearts. Lord, that it would affect us, that it would move us, that it would instruct us. That we would leave this this place today, that by the power of the spirit through your word, we would leave a different people than we were when we came. So we look up to you, our father, who delights to give good gifts to his children And we ask for these good gifts in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Many of you know that um, back in October, uh, there were a couple of weekends when I was away uh, preaching both times to pastors, uh, two different conferences that were both directed to pastors. And so I had prepared a number of messages for those conferences that were specifically for pastors. There was one of those messages, one that I did up in Trinity, up at the Trinity Pastors Conference, that as I thought about it, I thought could be adapted really to be a message that would be a benefit to our whole congregation. So I set that aside with the intention of opening up that message and bringing that message to you, uh, God willing, today on this particular Lord's Day. And so that's what I'll be doing today, uh, a message that was preached to pastors, but that I've adapted to our whole congregation that I trust will be a blessing to all of us. I've taken this passage in Mark's gospel as a kind of launching point uh, for the message. And it's a message in which I want to focus on the prayer life of the Lord Jesus as an example for us as his people. On one of the conferences that I was preaching at, the theme, the general theme that we were were given was the example, Christ's example for the minister of the gospel. But of course, Christ is not only our example as ministers, as pastors, but he is set forth as an example for all of God's people to follow in his steps, as the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter. And so I want to focus on the Lord Jesus' example in the area of prayer you'll notice in verse 35 of the passage that I read to us, we have these words. Now, in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. There he prayed. Prayer <clears throat> is vitally, vitally important for the Christian. Several years ago, Joel Beakey, gave an address at the Desiring God Conference on cultivating private prayer as a pastor. Of course, in that context, he was preaching mainly to pastors. and But there was something that he said in that address that especially struck me. He said, when he went to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia for his doctorate and he enrolled in the post-Reformation coursework, that while immersing himself in Luther and Calvin and the other reformers, he became convinced that the big difference between them and us, Reformed pastors and people today, is in this matter of prayer. He said, and I quote, if you read their sermons, well, the sermons aren't that much different than ours. I mean, maybe they're a bit better, but we're saying the same things. It was their prayer life which arrested me. And I said, this is the secret as to why their times were so often much more blessed and their ministries were so much more blessed than ours. Note, he says, our sermons aren't much different from theirs, but when it comes to their prayer life, we tend to lag far behind them. And the same can be true, uh, can be said to be true of the prayer lives of God's people in general. It was Martin Luther's habit to spend two hours a day alone with God in private devotion and prayer. His assistant, Philip Melanchthon, once came around a corner and he overheard Luther praying. And so he just stopped and he listened to him. And then he went back and he wrote these words in his diary. Gracious God, what faith, what spirit, what reverence. And yet with what holy familiarity did Master Martin pray? Calvin also was a man of prayer. He wrote in one of his commentaries, it's good to have certain hours appointed for prayer. Not because we're tied to hours, but unless we would ever become unmindful of prayer. John Welsh, one of the great Scottish reformers and preachers, the son-in-law of John Knox, he prayed several hours each day. And Beakey tells us that his wife said of him after he died that he left the robe beside his bed and never a night went past that he didn't get up in the middle of the night and go out into the cold side room and begin to pour out his soul to God. In fact, there was actually an occasion when his wife followed him out there. She was afraid that he would catch cold, get pneumonia. She wouldn't dare go into the room because it was too sacred, she said. But she called out to him saying, John, John, don't you think you should come to bed? And he called back through the door. Oh, my dear, I've got 3,000 souls to care for and I know not how it is with many of them. Once he was praying in the middle of the night, she overheard him pleading with God. Lord, give me Scotland. Give me Scotland. And I could go on with examples like this, not just with the Reformers. We see the same with many of the Puritans. For example, the wife of Joseph, Eileen. You may have heard of Eileen. I think he's the author of Alarm to the Unconverted, which was kind of a famous Puritan book and His wife wrote this about her husband after he died. At the time of his health, he did rise constantly at or before four of the clock on the Sabbath and would be much troubled if he heard smiths and other craftsmen at their trade before he was at communion with God, saying to me, How this noise shames me. Does not my master deserve more than theirs? It was his habit to spend from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. in private worship and prayer, contemplation, and singing of psalms. And examples like this uh, could be multiplied beyond the Puritans through the period of the 18th century revivals and to more recent times. Indeed, Beth and Lloyd-Jones, the wife of Martin Lloyd-Jones, said this about her husband. She said, you can't understand my husband as an evangelist or an expositor unless you understand, first of all, he was a man of prayer. Brothers and sisters, when you read about the lives of godly saints who were used of God down through the history of the church, it's very interesting, I think, to note their differences, many, many differences, very different personalities, different gifts, different levels of education, different strengths and weaknesses, differences in economic status and upbringing. There are many differences, but there's one common denominator. When it comes to those that God has used in mighty ways, whether pastors, missionaries, or ordinary Christians, they were all men and women who were committed to a life of prayer, and of course, the most eminent example of this is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I found the study of his prayer life to be something that's very inspiring and uh, moving and uh, instructive. It could be the subject of an entire series of sermons, really. What I, all I hope to do this this morning in this one message is to give something of a survey. As we begin to consider this, I want us to take note, first of all, this will be my first point, very simply this, that the Lord Jesus was indeed a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. And we have an example here in our text. And we have many other examples of Jesus praying in the gospel records. We see him praying at his baptism, Luke 3.21. We see him withdrawing into the wilderness to pray. Luke 5.16, after feeding the 5,000, he sent the multitudes away and he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. Mark 6.46, we're told that he spent the whole night in prayer before the selection of his 12 apostles, Luke 6.12. He was praying just before Peter's great confession, Luke 9.18, he was praying on the Mount of Transfiguration when the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening, Luke 9.28-29, he had been praying in a certain place when one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. They had seen him pray. They, they heard him pray, and the disciples were so moved by Jesus' prayer, so impressed, no doubt, with the reverence, the freedom, the urgency, the fullness, and the content of his prayers that he desired Jesus to teach them how to pray like that. And as has been pointed out many times, we never find the disciples asking Jesus to teach them to preach but they do ask him to teach them to pray. The Lord Jesus prayed at Gethsemane before going to the cross. He often prayed alone in a solitary place as we see here in our opening text. He also sometimes prayed with and in the company of his disciples. There are prayers of praise and thankfulness to the Father. Matthew eleven twenty five. we have prayers of intercession. You remember he said to Peter, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And we have his beautiful high priestly intercessory prayer for his people that's recorded for us in John chapter 17. So there are many examples of Jesus praying that are given to us in the Gospels. The Lord Jesus was a man of prayer. But now this immediately raises a question, perhaps in your mind. Why did Jesus need to pray? Or may I say this, why did Jesus need to pray? I mean, he's God, God the Son. Why does he pray? Was he just doing it to be an example for us? Well, his praying is intended to be an example for us, but it's more than that. Now when we ask the question, why did Jesus pray? The answer is because it was necessary for him to pray and for many of the same reasons that it is necessary for us to pray. You see, here we are brought face to face with the reality of our Lord's true humanity. Christ was not half God and half man. He was perfectly God, but at the same time he was perfectly and truly 100% human. This is the great mystery of the incarnation. And as a man, our Lord placed himself in a position of absolute dependence and submission to the Father. As we read in Philippians 2, 6 and following, though he was equal with the Father, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of, of the cross. He became obedient to whom? To the Father. You see, Jesus as a man voluntarily assumed a position of absolute dependence upon the Father. And this is why you keep hearing him say things like this throughout the course of his public ministry. John 5 19 Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. John 6, 39. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, we just read this this morning, uh, but the will of him who sent me. He lived in dependence upon the Father, and he lived therefore as a man, he lived by faith. And he lived as a man of prayer, just as you and I are to do. He didn't pray just to be an example for us. He prayed because he must pray. Now, It's true there are some parts of prayer Jesus had no need of. For example, he never needed to engage in personal confession of sin in his prayers, as we do. He had no sin. The petition, forgive us our trespasses, though it's a petition necessary for him to teach us to pray, is something he never needed to pray for himself. He never needed to go before God in self-examination to review his sins of the past day and to confess them or to seek grace from God to increasingly mortify them as you and I very much need to do and why we even more so need to pray. He was perfectly holy, undefiled and separate from sin. But he still needed to pray, to pray for the blessing of the Spirit upon his ministry, to pray for wisdom and strength to overcome temptation, to maintain as a man his life of of devotion to the Father. It was in answer to prayer that he was enabled to fulfill the work and every specific part of the work that the Father gave him to do. Now now there's something I think here that's comforting about this. It brings our Lord very close to us. As one of us, a true human who is absolutely dependent upon the Father, who must seek from the Father the things he needs in prayer. But there's another lesson here, quoting James Stalker. Although a man, Jesus was a sinless man, yet he needed prayer and resorted to it continually. What a commentary on our need of it, because what he was, being what he he was, how must we need it being what we are? Brothers and sisters, we need to feel the weight of this, don't we? If our sinless Lord must pray, how much more must we pray? If Jesus could not accomplish the work he was given to do as our Savior... Without continual prayer, how much more is this the case with us when it comes to the various tasks and the jobs and the works of service that have been given us to do? If as a man he must commune with the Father in prayer, seek wisdom in prayer, seek strength to carry out his tasks in prayer, seek the blessing of God upon his labors and the salvation of his hearers by prayer, if Jesus must do that, how much more must I do that? Then must we do that? In Spurgeon's lectures to my students, I find the opening lines of his chapter on the preacher's private prayer very searching. He says this He begins that that lecture to his students with these words Of course, the preacher is above all others distinguished as a man of prayer. Of course. That should be assumed, right? He continues. He prays as an ordinary Christian, else he were a hypocrite. He prays more than an ordinary Christian, else he were disqualified for the office which he has undertaken. He prays, think about this, he prays as an ordinary Christian, else he were a hypocrite. Let me, let me just say this, that a person who is entirely prayerless, who rarely prays with any degree of regularity at all, has good reason to doubt if he's ever been born again, if he's ever been converted to begin with. Quoting from Greg Nichols, a prayerless person is ungrateful because he does not thank God. He's self-righteous because he doesn't confess his sins to God. He's self-centered because he doesn't ask God to bless other people. He's presumptuous because he doesn't pray for his daily needs. He's irreverent because he does not praise God, nor pray for his kingdom to come, and he's unfriendly to God because his prayerlessness is evidence he doesn't enjoy God. Back to Spurgeon's introduction to his chapter on the preacher's prayer life, and this is where this should be especially convicting For me and and others of you here today who are pastors or those of you in our congregation, we have quite a number of them who are preparing for the Christian ministry. He says he prays as an ordinary Christian else he were a hypocrite. But then he goes further, he prays more than ordinary Christians else he were disqualified from the office he has undertaken. What do you think about that statement? Is that too strong? Is that too strong of a statement? Well, at least certainly if a pastor's Calling in life is to shepherd God's people and to preach the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deal with matters that have at stake the eternal destinies of the souls of men, not to mention the care of the church and the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. Surely, if this is the calling to which we have devoted our lives, at the very least, we can say that it ought to be true of every minister of the gospel that not only do we pray as ordinary true Christians do, but we pray more than ordinary true Christians do. But whether ministers of the gospel or ordinary Christians, dear friends, prayer must be a non-negotiable priority in our lives. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost. So this is my first point. It's simply the fact that Jesus was indeed a man of prayer. But now in the time remaining, I want to zero in on some of the occasions in which we find Jesus doing so and what we can learn from it. Now, there are many examples we could look at. I mentioned several of them earlier in the message. And all of them are instructive, but obviously we don't have time to look at, look at all of them. Uh, prayer was our Lord's daily practice, as it should be for us. And there were always many things to be praying about, and again, the same is true for us. But I want to zero in on a couple of situations in which we find Jesus giving himself to prayer. Let's look first of all again at our opening text, Mark one thirty-five. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, And there he prayed. Now let me say something about the context. Now, of course, the life of Jesus during his earthly ministry was always busy. But this particular day had been quite a day for him and his disciples. As I was originally studying this chapter, I thought of the sermon title came to my mind, A Day in the Life of Jesus. It would be an interesting message just to work your way through this whole chapter because we have this snapshot of what a day was like in his life in this particular day. How did this day start? It starts up in verse 21. We read, Then they, Jesus and his disciples, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. Now Mark likes to use this word immediately. You may have noticed that when you're reading through the Gospel of Mark. And he's showing us that Jesus was a man on the move. He was always busy, active, engaged in the work he was given to do. And the day described in this chapter was a particularly busy day. It was the Sabbath, and it begins with him teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. And wow, what a service they had that day. Unlike anything these people had ever heard. Verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching. And there was something else amazing, something even shocking that happened at church that day. There was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit who began to cry out. During the service. And Jesus cast the demon out of the man. And immediately, Mark says, his fame spread through all the region around Galilee. The news of what just had happened at church spread like wildfire through all the little towns and communities there in Galilee. Well, as soon as Jesus left the synagogue, he went over to Simon Peter's house with Peter and some of the other disciples. This this didn't turn out to be an ordinary restful Sabbath dinner time. Peter's mother-in-law, who who probably would have been the one preparing that afternoon meal, she was sick with a fever. Uh, Jesus told, he heals her. And then before the day is over, you look outside and people are gathering all around the house. People started showing up at the house. And folks are bringing to Jesus all who are sick and those who are demon-possessed. And we're told that the whole city gathered at the door. So throughout that evening, Jesus is busy healing the sick, casting out demons, counseling as it were, and so on. It was an extremely busy day, and it was a wonderful day. A wonderful day a blessing upon our Lord's ministry. Now, it might seem reasonable after a day like that for Jesus to just sleep in a little bit. And let me just say that sometimes that's that's a wise thing to do. It's a good thing to do. It's not that that's bad to do that, ever to do that. But on this occasion, what did Jesus do? Well, we're told in our text, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now try to imagine the scene. Try to imagine Jesus crawling out of bed, It's very early morning. It's still dark outside. It's a long while before daylight, the text says. The others are lying there and asleep in the house. You can hear Peter over in the corner snoring very loudly, perhaps. And Jesus quietly slips out the door. He goes down the alley or along the street. He turns out into a nearby field or he heads up on a hill and into a grove of trees just outside the city. And he finds a quiet, secluded place where he can be completely alone. And there he pours out his heart to God. And he gives himself to prayer. Now, Jesus often prayed alone like this. He prayed alone like this, no doubt, in order not to be seen by men. He was praying to his father in secret that his father might reward him openly as he teaches us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your room and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Praying in secret, maybe in a solitary place outside, like Jesus here in our text, or in a private room uh, with the door shut, as he says on the Sermon on the Mount, or it may be on your back porch. The exact place is not what is important here. What's important is finding somewhere where you can be alone with God. Indeed, whatever... Whatever public prayers we might pray, or however well you might pray them, whether in the prayer meeting or in some other public setting, if it's not your habit to pray in secret, my friend, where nobody sees and nobody hears but God, there's good reason to question whether those public prayers are worth very much. The Pharisees were very big on praying publicly before men. You remember Jesus talks about that about them? But one of the things that marked them out as hypocrites is who they were in private. So Jesus goes early in the morning to a solitary place to pray. Probably another reason he did this is so he could pray out loud. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with praying silently. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think praying silently has its benefits as well. It allows us to pray anywhere, at any time, and to pray sometimes with groans and desires, Expressing feelings and thoughts that are hard to actually put into words, but sometimes it's a great help to pray out loud. I'm sure many of you have found that to be the case. It's easier for your mind to drift when you're praying silently in your heart, but praying out loud can be a great help to uh, to keep up concentration. And also, being alone it allows more freedom without the fear of the embarrassment of other people hearing what you're saying, to really express those deep private thoughts and concerns that only God needs to hear. Perhaps on this occasion, Jesus prayed in both ways, sometimes with his voice, sometimes silently. And what do you think Jesus was praying about? I don't think it's hard to imagine you know, some of the things that he probably prayed about no doubt he prayed for grace and strength to do the work that was before him the next day while work that was increasing it was becoming more and more demanding the work that the father had given him to do no doubt he prayed for guidance should i stay here should i move move on to some of the other towns that i might preach there also as he in fact ends up doing at the end of the chapter or at the end of this section of the chapter i imagine him praying for his disciples Those under his immediate care, uh, as we see him do on other occasions, and for those who were already believing in him, that they might be protected from the evil one, that they might grow in grace and godliness and be fully prepared and equipped for the great work that would be theirs after our Lord left them. Surely he prayed for the salvation of sinners. This is the same Jesus who wept over Jerusalem. And I can imagine him that night earnestly crying to God, for the souls of men. Brothers and sisters, do we not have many of the same things to pray about? Do you pray for these things? Do you set aside seasons of prayer to give yourself for lengthy, uninterrupted periods of time to crying to God for your family members, for those who are under your care, crying to God for the conversion of lost sinners. No doubt it was Jesus' habit to engage in private prayer on a daily basis. But here we see what I think we're warranted to call a special season of prayer. And he engages in this prolonged time of very early morning prayer, note this, at a time when his life was extremely busy. And also at a time when he had just experienced great blessing upon his ministry. So let's think about those two things. First of all, it was a time of great busyness. A great busyness. And this is not the only example of him engaging in special prayer at a time like that. For example, we read in Luke 5, 13 to 14, The report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together, and to be healed by him of their infirmities, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. The crowds are coming to hear him, to be healed. Great multitudes, the needs, the opportunities, the pressures of the work are becoming greater and greater. So what does he do? He often withdrew into the wilderness to pray. You know, it's not uncommon, is it, for someone to say, and uh, I've heard this so many times, and probably I've said it, and we've all said it, if we're honest. It's not uncommon for someone to say, I've just been too busy lately to pray. I'm just so busy. The pressures, the the time constraints that I'm under. I just don't have time to pray. More than just perhaps a few minutes here and there. Well, my dear brothers and sisters, it's especially at a time like that that you need to pray. The more you have to do, the more you need to pray. Luther understood this. He once said to Melanchthon, I have so much to do today, I must spend the first three hours in prayer. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting you spend three hours in prayer, but the point is, the more busy we are, I'm talking about legitimately busy. I'm not talking about busy looking at social media. I'm not talking about busy with things that are a waste of time. But when you're in a season when the legitimate and necessary responsibilities of your life and service to Christ are unusually demanding, not the less, but the more time, you need to give to prayer. This is what we see in Jesus' example. Now that's counterintuitive, isn't it? It would seem more logical to say, I have so much to do today, I can't pray. Or I need to cut back my prayers today. But we shouldn't think like that. Jesus didn't think like that. No, the more I have to do, the more I have to pray about. The more I have to do, the more I need God's help. The more I need his wisdom. The more I need his power and strength to uphold me. The more I need his guidance. The more I need his grace to help keep me calm and composed instead of being overcome by frantic anxiety under all the pressures. And therefore, the more I need to pray, the more careful then I need to be, to be disciplined in the way I organize my hours and my days so as to have better time for prayer. Listen to James Stalker commenting on this example of Jesus and its relevance for us. He writes, Many know what this congestion of occupations is. They are swept off their feet with their engagements and can scarcely find time to eat. We make this a reason for not praying. Jesus made it a reason for praying. Is there any doubt which is the better course? A wise man once said that he was too, listen, a wise man once said that he was too busy to be in a hurry. He meant that if he allows himself to become hurried, he cannot do all that he had to do. There's nothing like prayer for producing this calm self-possession. When the dust of business so fills your room that it threatens to choke you, sprinkle it with the water of prayer. And then you can cleanse it out with comfort and expedition. And immediately, I, I, when I read that quote, read that, I think of what Paul said in Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Make your requests known unto God and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But this is important not only in a time of unusual busyness, but as was also the case here in our text in a time when perhaps things are going great, experiencing great blessing as Jesus had just experienced here. On this wonderful day. The danger then is to become prideful. Or careless. Overly self-confident. To fail to keep watch against the wiles of the devil. Times of blessing in our life. Times when things are going well. Nothing wrong with that. But they can be dangerous times for us. And so it was at such a time we find Jesus giving himself to a special season of extended prayer. And again, this is not the only place that we see this. You remember after the feeding of the 5,000, in John chapter 6, we're told that the people began saying, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and to take him to make him king, what did he do? He departed again to the mountain By himself alone. And Matthew gives us a little more detail. He says he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. The Lord Jesus was aware of the temptations of success. The temptations of fickle human praise. To cause him to deviate from his mission. And to bypass the cross. And if blessing upon his work. Or if the accolades of men. And times when things are going well. Were a danger for him they're a thousand times more dangerous for us. There's the intoxicating influence of pride. It's a terrible, ugly thing. And let me say for those of us who are pastors or ministerial students here today, ministerial pride is an especially ugly thing. We start believing the press. Everyone's praising me. What a wonderful preacher you are, pastor. Pastor. What a great sermon. You are truly the great prophet who has come into the world. Look at how God is blessing the church right now. I'm so thankful that we have such a wonderful pastor. And if you're not careful, you actually begin to believe it. I really am a wonderful pastor. These blessings are indeed because of how gifted and wise I am. Now if only others could see it on a wider sphere. Or maybe you think this about yourself, you think, but others don't s- seem to see it like I do. Maybe I can help them to see it by demonstrating my superiority by attention-getting Facebook posts. Ah, look at all the likes I got. Let me check, and or maybe I should be talking about young people. Don't use Facebook anymore, do they? What is it now? Twitter, or is it Instagram? All right, look at all the likes. I got. Let me check and see the comments. Wow, some good ones. Oh, thank you so much for your post. I'm so glad there are men like you who are so sound theologically and so wise. I love your posts. Blah, 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 blah. And now your head really begins to swell. What's my point? Times when people are praising you. Times of blessing upon your life or times of blessing upon your service to Christ, whatever your service to Christ may be, or times in which you especially need to give yourself to special prayer. Now is one of those times. You especially must watch and pray lest you enter into temptation and fall into the snare of the devil. It can be times of blessing. if We can think of it corporately. Times of blessing upon us as a church in general are time, times in which we as a church especially need to be giving ourselves to prayer. Cry to God to keep you humble. Plead with him to help you to keep your head. Get before God who knows everything about you. People may say what they will, but he knows the truth. And you know he knows the truth, that you're really not all that wonderful after all. You know what I am, Lord. I'm a wretched, weak, foolish sinner who deserves nothing but hell. Don't let me forget it. And don't let me forget that any blessing upon my life or on my work is not because of me. It's all of your glory, and all the glory belongs to you alone. But then let me point out to us one other type of situation in which we see the Lord giving himself to a special season of prayer. There are others we could look at. For example, a time of of, uh, peculiar temptation, uh, like Gethsemane. And we see him praying then and so on. But I only have time for one more. So turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer. To God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. You have this larger group of disciples. And from them, he chose out of that larger group 12, whom he also named apostles. So before Jesus chose 12 men to be his apostles, he spent the whole night in prayer. Now, this is the only example that we have in the New Testament of someone spending a whole night in prayer. And notice he went out to the mountain to pray. Again, a place where he could be alone and undisturbed, a place where he could give full concentration of his mind and heart to prayer with the least amount of distractions. Perhaps he prayed audibly part of the time, silently part of the time. He may have also paused from time to time to contemplate, to meditate, to think upon the issues and the concerns that were before him. Perhaps he carefully considered each one of the many disciples individually, who were following him at that time, their characters, their personalities, their strengths, their weaknesses, while bringing each one before the Father, seeking the Father's will as to who should be chosen to be apostles. Now, wouldn't you like to have been there on that mountain that night, watching Jesus, listening to Jesus while he prayed? So we see here Jesus, in addition to the regular habit of prayer, again on occasion, set aside special extended seasons of prayer. And we ought to do that from time to time as well. Now he didn't always, and I would imagine he very rarely prayed all night. But on this occasion he did. And presumably it was because of the tremendous and important decisions that he was about to make the next day. Now none of us are required to pray for that long as a general rule. I think a few of us could do it To profit, it might be harmful for some of you if you did due to the present state of your physical health. It would certainly not be best for any of us to do that on a regular basis. We do have other God-given duties and responsibilities, and ordinarily it's wise to make sure that you're getting enough sleep. We're to live balanced Christian lives, balancing work and service and family responsibilities and adequate rest with acts of personal and private devotion. We're not to live like monks, who do nothing but pray and memorize scripture all the time. Also, the length of our times of prayer is not the most important thing. It's the sincerity of our prayers that's most important. But at the same time, at the same time, whether all-nighters or whole afternoons or setting aside a couple of hours or three, sometimes it's good to set apart time for special extended seasons of prayer. Especially following our Lord's example, when you find yourself facing important life-changing or family-affecting or ministry-shaping decisions. It was when Jesus faced this momentous decision of choosing the 12 disciples that he spent the whole night in prayer. Now, brothers and sisters, are we not all guilty at times of deciding to do so, making an important decision about something that has to do with our lives or with our families or with the church when in fact we haven't prayed about it at all or very little. Well, may the Lord forgive us. Now, what does this mean? How what's the relationship of, of God giving us wisdom and guidance and, and prayer? Well, this doesn't mean that we're to expect God to somehow give us a vision of what to do if we pray. Or that the Holy Spirit will whisper in your ear some kind of direct revelation from God. No. But when you're facing important decisions in your life or facing serious problems perhaps at work or in your family or in the church, together with thinking and asking questions about it and seeking wise counsel from fellow Christians, perhaps your pastors, and studying the situation as best you can, you also need to pray seriously and earnestly for God to help you, for God to help you to carefully weigh all the various considerations in an unbiased manner and to help you to see where any teaching of Scripture may apply to this particular situation or how this may affect your your walk with Christ or how it may affect your family or your service to Christ and pray for him to help you to see anything that you might be missing. And then having done that, brothers and sisters, then you must... Trust God, not wait for God to zap you from heaven or give you a vision, but you can make a decision. Trusting that God will help you if it is indeed your chief desire to honor him. That doesn't mean there won't be problems along the way. You know, some seem to think that if you make a decision and some bad things happen, that means you made the wrong decision. But that's not always true. Sometimes it's part of God's plan for us to experience painful trials and disappointments. But if you belong to Jesus Christ and as best you know your heart, you truly desire and seek only whatever his will is in the important life decisions that you make and you seek wisdom from him in prayer about those matters, he will not play games with you. He's not like the Easter bunny, you know, hiding Easter eggs from us and it's like the Easter bunny hunt. No, he will be with you and he will help you as you seek that help from him in prayer. But if I'm a man, a pastor, who leads my church and makes important ministry decisions, or if I'm a man who leads my family, or a wife or a single person who makes important decisions in my life without earnestly seeking the face of God in prayer, I should not be surprised if my foolish, self-confident trust in my own wisdom leads to serious mistakes if not disasters that will later be greatly, greatly regretted. And let me apply this to those of you who are preparing for the ministry. We have several here, an unusual number of such here. And I also want to apply this to the young people who are in the midst of preparing for your future. Whatever that future may be. You're in the preparatory stages of life, whether you're one of these young men preparing for the ministry or you're preparing for your life work, whatever it may be. You're in the midst of your studies. Do you bathe your studies in prayer? Or perhaps you're uncertain what God's plan might be for you. Do you pray earnestly about this? Am I to be a pastor who preaches the word, who labors in word and doctrine? Am I more suited to be a supporting elder in a church? Or perhaps God would have me serve him out on the mission field somewhere. And if so, where should I set my sights? Or perhaps God would have me serve him in some other way and in some other kind of ordinary vocation. My friend, are you praying about these things? Seriously and earnestly And perhaps even setting aside special seasons of prayer to seek God's help and God's guidance and to seek the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon whatever work he has planned for you that you're about to undertake. Listen as I read this entry from the Journal of David Brainerd. And this is before he was ordained to the Christian ministry. And as many of you know, he became a missionary to the Indians, North America, He said, I set apart this day for fasting and prayer to God for his grace, especially to prepare me for the work of the ministry, to give me divine aid and direction in my preparations for that great work, and in his own time to send me into his harvest. Do you set aside times like that? For focused seasons of prayer, for grace to prepare you for whatever work God has, has for you, for divine aid and direction in your preparation for that work. Listen to Brainerd's description of his experience that day that he set aside for fasting and prayer. He said, I felt the power of intercession for precious immortal souls, for the advancement of the kingdom of my dear Lord and Savior in the world, and with all a most sweet resignation, And even consolation and joy in the thought of suffering hardships, distresses, and even death itself in the promotion of it. My soul was drawn out very much for the world, for multitudes of souls. I think I had more enlargement for sinners than for the children of God. Though I felt as if I could spend my life in cries for both. I enjoyed great sweetness in communion with my dear Savior. I think I never in my life felt such an entire weanedness from this world and so much resigned to God in everything. Well, may God grant that all of us might know more of what it is to pray like that. Ardent wrestling with God for the salvation of sinners, for God's direction and wisdom in our life's work for the work of God in the church and in the world, great sweetness of communion with our Father and with our dear Savior. As I close, brothers and sisters, how should you respond to this message today? You can almost see the dread on people's faces when you tell them you're going to preach a sermon on prayer. And when you, oh boy. And here comes the guilt, right? How should you respond to this? Well, this message, these considerations are not intended to cause us to wallow in guilt, but to remind us afresh of the importance of prayer and to encourage us with respect to the possibilities of what Christ can enable us to do better and to grow in. The proper response is not merely to say well, pastor, I need to try harder. That's a good message, pastor. I realize I really need to try harder. No, the response is to confess our failures and our sins in this area before God and to believe the gospel. Believe in him whose blood cleanses us from all of our failures and our sins. To be thankful for his mercy To sinners like us. And then from that posture of faith and confidence in the gospel and in God's mercy to us in Christ, ask him and trust him for the grace to begin to change and then start doing it. Prayer's not easy. It's often a great struggle. It's one of the hardest things for a Christian to do. As soon as you get down to pray... Your mind wants to go here. Your mind wants to go there. That, that, that magazine that you haven't read in 50 years and sitting over on the table suddenly becomes very interesting. It's because it's at that very point when we are engaging in the most spiritual of activities that we meet up with the resistance of our remaining sin in flesh. That's what Paul was talking about. When I would do good, evil is present with me. And that's why the Bible uses language like wrestling in prayer. Fervency in prayer. It's work. It's not easy. It's often a great struggle. Sometimes we're ashamed of our prayers. They're so weak. But keep at it. And the Lord will help you to grow in your prayer life. May God make us all prayer warriors. Lord, teach us to pray. May that be our prayer this morning. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is where spiritual life begins. It begins with prayer. Crying to the one, the only one who can save you. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Call upon the name of the Lord while he may be found. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Seek him, call upon him. His ear is open to sinners who cry to him for mercy. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you today for the example of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the searchlight of your word. We thank you for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the hope and encouragement that we have in the gospel We pray that by your help and spirit that we will follow the example of Christ. Teach us to pray. Help us, Lord, to agonize, to fight the good fight and to fight that fight in this very important area. Learning and engaging in the great work of prayer. Help us, hear us, we ask it in the name of our savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl dot O-R-G